You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Michael Lynch, who is using Flask to help power a hardware device that lets you control a computer without installing any software on it. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Very happy to have you on. So do you want to start us off by letting people know a little bit more about what you've built? Sure. It's a device that's called the Tiny Pilot, and so it's based on the Raspberry Pi. And one of the less well-known features of the Raspberry Pi is that it can impersonate USB devices. So it can impersonate uh, keyboards and mice and USB flash drives. And so I built a, a device on top of the Pi so that you can remotely control uh, computers and servers without installing any software on them. So you, you basically have a physical connection to the computer um, without having to install any software anywhere. And so the way it works is you plug into uh, the Tiny Pilot's just a, a small device that you plug into your computer's display output. It connects into the Tiny Pilot. And then you connect data output from the Tiny Pilot into the target computer. And the target computer sees the USB device as, it's it's really a Raspberry Pi, but the target computer sees it as a USB keyboard and mouse and USB drive. And that lets you um, forward keystrokes and mouse movement. And so there's a uh, Flask front end. So you can open up this dashboard in the web browser. You're seeing the screen remotely captured um, and, and rendered in the browser. And then any, any keystrokes you type into the browser window uh, are forwarded through to the tiny pilot into the target computer as if you were sitting there with a physical computer or a physical keyboard. And so it's really useful for, for like headless systems. Like I have a, a home server that's headless. It just runs on uh, in the corner in my office and that was the original inspiration. But there's a lot of people who have uh, servers in IT closets or something that they don't wanna have like a whole keyboard and monitor hooked up to it. And so this is a really convenient way for them to manage those. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were describing how this works, like I have a buddy who like your product is like the exact use case for him where he just has a server sitting in a closet, doesn't have anything connected to it, but actually wants to interface with it. Oh, perfect. That is awesome though. Like, yeah, like technology is getting crazy, right? Yeah. That is amazing. Um, when did you start this project? I I started it at the beginning of 2020 and it was an app to help people find live comedy. And then uh, right around March, uh, for reasons that you could probably guess, I, I shut that down because it... The, the world didn't have such a demand for uh, people gathering in small spaces to uh, laugh together. <laughs> and so I was mm -hmm. kind of looking at for new projects. I was working on this other SaaS app that wasn't really taking off. But in the meantime, I was working on building a new home server. And one of the problems that I had with my previous home server is that I would often run into situations where I would screw up the network settings or like screw up my SSH configuration, so I just couldn't log in anymore. And so when that happened, I had to drag the server over to my desk, disconnect my monitor, like reconnect everything, then figure out what the problem was, then move it back. And I knew about, uh, there's there's a technology called um, IPMI with, that a lot of modern servers have, where it's, it's sort of like if you have a network connection, it's just like a simple side uh, control plane where you get to see the display output and basically have um, physical level access through like a, another network port on the server. And the server I had 
didn't support that. And then when I started looking into servers that did, it was actually a lot more complicated than I expected. So Dell has a technology called iDRAC. HP has a technology called ILO. But you can't, I was expecting it to just be like, you buy a server that supports that and then you just have it. But it turns out you actually have to like license that technology separately. Uh, I believe a Dell iDRAC license is like $600. And then there's complications where like if you if you buy it used, you don't necessarily inherit the license. And that felt silly to me. And I was like, I just want something that like I I own this hardware and it lets me access my other hardware that I own and there's no licensing involved. I just buy the hardware. And so I looked into this technology existed already. It's called, they're called KVM over IP devices, but there's a a bunch of different versions of that. And they are like generally like between 600 and $2,000. And so I was like, I don't want to spend $2,000 on just a, a little thing to manage my server every couple months if I break it. And then I, I sort of remembered that Raspberry Pi could emulate a keyboard and mouse. And I figured that there would be like some kind of uh, USB video capture device at that point. And I started tinkering, like I would buy lots of different hardware. I probably ended up spending like more than $1,200 on just experimenting with it, just <laughs> out of out of stubbornness, because I didn't want to pay somebody $2,000 for a KVM or but I would buy like lots of different hardware that was meant to capture HDMI input uh, from a, a computer source. And I would find different versions that would be able to, to do it at various latencies. Like latency was the big, uh, the big uh, stumbling block because you can capture video, but for a KVM over IP solution, you really want it to be fast. Like if, if it's more than a couple hundred milliseconds, it's really noticeable and hard to use. And so there was a lot of experimenting uh, before I found like hardware and software that would be able to capture the video from the target computer and then render it in the browser fast enough that it, it feels like a, a smooth solution. The The keyboard and mouse actually ended up being pretty easy. There were a lot of people who, there weren't great tutorials, but there was enough that you could kind of put it together and, and figure out how to, um, how to implement uh, keyboard and mouse emulation in the Pi. And then from there, it was just building a, a web front end that would take it from the browser and then forward it to the Raspberry Pi that could translate it into signals that looked like a, a real keyboard or mouse. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff to unwind there. And I'm really happy that you took the extra time to find a hardware combo where, yeah, you're not sitting there waiting for like 200 milliseconds because that is a really sensitive thing. Like, I don't know if it's like different folks, but I'm very sensitive to input latency when I'm typing. If I don't see what I'm getting, it just feels like the whole experience is off. Right. Yeah. And you were talking before, I forget the acronym, the one that like IPMI, that type of thing. When you say it's like supported on the server, you're talking like that's a specific motherboard feature, right? Like at the right. level? Right. Yeah. Yeah. My buddy, we were looking into something similar like that, like, I don't know, like a year ago. And I think it came to the same conclusion as you. So I'm actually like the first thing after this episode, it's like, I'm emailing him a link. To oh, great. <laughs> so yeah. Like, do you want to walk us through a little bit of how you go from, cause I'm the same way. I don't know if you're exactly like this, but like as a developer, I don't know, like my brain is broken, right? I'll spend like 200 hours developing something instead of buying something for a thousand, even right. though like, it's like, I can technically afford it, but still like, I don't know, there's some weird principle in my brain. Like, but do you want to walk us through like the approach of what you want from just like complete idea in your head to like, okay, these are the components that I need and like how these, how, and like, did you do the software before the hardware? Like, I'm not sure about hardware development stuff. The, yeah, really curious to hear how that goes. Yeah, it was, it was very incremental. It was a lot of, going down paths that ended up being dead ends. And it it almost worked out perfectly for me in terms of 
making progress enough that I, I didn't get discouraged and stop because I'm also like, I'm not a hardware person. I'm most of my career has been uh, in software. I worked for, for Google and Microsoft for most of my career and on the software side. And so a lot of the hardware stuff was very new to me and video, especially like I, I don't know a ton about video. Like I can uh, find my way around FFmpeg if I find a good enough example, but it's, it's all kind of sorcery to me. And so the the start was just getting the keyboard forwarding to work because I was really curious about that. I had seen people write tutorials about how they could emulate a keyboard, and that just seemed really magic to me. It, it seems so strange that you could get a Raspberry Pi to do that, and it works on the Raspberry Pi 4, uh, which is about, at the time, it was about $35. They're, they're hard to come by these days. But uh, it worked on the Pi Zero as well, which is like um, a, a $10 device, and that's that's almost even cooler because it's it's like, a little bit bigger than the size of a stick of gum and you, you get a, a Wi-Fi connection and you plug it into a computer and then it's just, it's forwarding keyboard input for you. So that was definitely the, the first part. And I actually split it up into an initial project uh, that was just keyboard forwarding and didn't do anything else. Didn't have any video, didn't handle mouse uh, forwarding at all. And I, I called that project Key Mime Pie and I wrote about it on my blog. Because in, in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe maybe there is something here. Like, I'm not really getting any traction on the current SaaS application I'm working on. But maybe if I blog about this, people will get interested. And then maybe there's a product here. And so I blogged about Keymind Pie, and people were really interested. It, it did well on Reddit and uh, got a little bit of traction on Hacker News. And people, I, I put a link in the bottom saying, I'm, I'm thinking about making this a, a full-fledged KVM RIP, including video. So if you're interested in following along, sign up for the mailing list. And so by the time I, I continued working on it, I, I sort of by a stroke of luck, the, the next big step was uh, finding a, this had come out like probably just a few months before I started working on this. But there are these little HDMI or yeah HDMI to USB capture devices. So they were like twelve dollars. They had come out like probably late twenty nineteen, early twenty twenty. So that was a, a stumbling block. There were a lot of projects similar to mine that people had tried to build a KVM over IP on the Raspberry Pi. But the stumbling block for a lot of them was just the HDMI capture. It was it was really slow. Like a lot of people would uh, figure out ways to do like. Uh, HDMI to VGA and then VGA to USB and like through all that you you have to deal with a lot of like lots of different cables lots of different adapters um, and I think that made a lot of these projects difficult to approach and so I came in at a really lucky time where these really affordable HDMI to USB devices popped up and you just plug them in they they captured in a format called MJPEG um, which is is fairly friendly to streaming. So you don't have to do a lot of, for, for MJPEG, you don't have to do any kind of compression on the Raspberry Pi device to convert it to a, a streaming format. You can stream it directly the, the way you got it from the device. And so that, that was like a big step forward. And then the other big um, aha was there was a, a software tool called Ustreamer that one of the other uh, Raspberry Pi KVM over IP projects had developed. And that I was I was originally like trying to do it with M, uh, FFmpeg, and that was pretty hard. That was introducing a lot of latency. And then when I uh, tried Ustreamer, that brought the latency down a lot more, and that was sort of the the final piece of the puzzle. And so putting all those, those all 
together, I had a minimum viable project product that it would show the video in the, the browser window and you could forward keystrokes. It didn't support mouse. It didn't have a lot of the, a lot of the later uh, fancier features that I added, but it worked. Like I could manage my server that way. I could, uh, I, and I, I did, I like, I built a, a brand new server using only the, like a prototype of the, uh, Raspberry Pi tiny pilot. And that was like a pretty mind blowing experience for me that I could just like with probably like less than a hundred dollars worth of equipment. I just put this thing together that let me manage a, a server remotely just in my browser. Yeah, that's really awesome. And when it comes to that hardware device, the initial prototype, it's kind of just like dangling out there. Right. But- the end product, it's all nice and like a really nice black box. What was that process like? Did you actually have to like pick up a solder gun to get this going or did you get it manufactured somewhere? Yeah, that was another really lucky stroke of luck. Um, I guess all strokes of luck are lucky. But I, I had a friend that I had met through um, like a tech founders networking event. And I was telling her about this project. And she said, oh, you know, I have a friend that works at the 3D printing lab at University of Massachusetts. Uh, Amherst, and he could probably like help you with the 3D printing stuff. If you want to make a custom case for this, and I was like, "Oh, okay, that sounds interesting." And at the same time, I knew that there was this other. So there, there's like this $12 HDMI to USB dongle that worked pretty well, but there was this even better one for about $35. But the problem with that one is it's just a chip. It's just like a bare chip, and so it's hard to put that together into a product because there aren't there aren't like publicly available cases that. Uh, support this chip so you'd you'd have even worse than just like a a usb dongle hanging out you'd have like this bare chip uh like hangling hanging right outside of the case it wouldn't really look like a a good product but if i had somebody build a 3d printed case around it that could nicely house the pi and the hdmi capture chip then that becomes a real product and so I, I worked with the 3D printer and he was like, yeah, I can, I can definitely put something together for you. And so we did. And like, that was how we, we created the, the next iteration of it uh, called the Tiny Pilot Voyager, which includes the, the higher quality HDMI capture chip and a nice 3D printed case. Very nice. So is this one of those scenarios where like the outside looks beautiful, but you go on the inside and it's like underneath my desk where I just have like 4,000 <laughs> wires everywhere? Uh, it's not too bad on the inside. The The first time we had uh, a YouTube review, uh, we sent it to like a tech YouTuber who did a review of it. And um, my girlfriend who's working with me uh, on the, the company at the time, um, she like did a lot of the assembly and we were watching this YouTube reviewer and he's like, let's check out what insi- what's inside. And we we're both like, oh God, no. <laughs> Cause we like, we didn't expect anybody to look inside, but he looked inside and it was fine. Like it's, it's not ugly, but it's just like you're seeing a Raspberry Pi and a little fan. And so it's just it's kind of like some some wires uh, tucked away, but it's nothing too horrific. And we've gotten over time, we've gotten better at routing the wires so that they um, w- once it's all assembled, it it looks pretty nice, even if people do have to open it up. Right. Now, speaking of assembly, uh, I'm not sure if you want to share these figures, but like how many of these do you sell per month or year or do you put them together by hand or does someone else do it now? Yeah. So I now have a uh, local staff. There's there's two people that work with me um, in my town and we've got an office that we rent by the month where we've got all the the raw materials. And so um, it's it's a pretty good process now. So they, they come in, uh, somebody comes into the office once a day, usually in the evenings 
and they'll see what we need to make more of and they'll assemble them by hand. And so in a, in a given month, we'll usually sell um, something like 75 to 150 of the Voyagers and maybe like 70 of the, the Hobbyist kit, which is not the 3D printed version. That's the one that's uh, just with the, the external dongle. Oh, wow. That's actually kind of a lot, right? Because it's like 200 of them give or take over a month. Yeah. You're dealing with, that's not just like, you know, one every once in a while. Right. No, it's it's a few a day usually. Right. Now, yeah, I would like to talk a little bit about the uh, software side of things, like specifically how you set up the Flask server and using Python and anything else. Like, I'm curious though, is there a way to like mock out the hardware component so you were able to work on the software without needing things connected? Yeah, the initial version, the the way that we deployed Flask on the device was... I wanted it to be extremely easy for users to just have a bare Raspberry Pi and be able to install TinyPilot on it because it's it's an open source project. So I've got a, a pro version with some extra features, but the the core version is still free and anybody can install it on on their device. And so I wanted a way where like I, I see a lot of Raspberry Pi based projects where it's a lot of upfront work just to to get it running on your system, and I wanted it to to be basically just like you run one command and when that's done it your your system has tiny pilot installed and the way i was developing it was i used ansible which is uh, i i'm guessing you're you're familiar with it but for anybody that's not it's a configuration management tool uh, also python based and so you you define what software and what steps you want to take on a system and you can run ansible and it ensures that the system is in that state and so during development, I would use these uh, Ansible playbooks to deploy all the code onto the Raspberry Pi device. And so I was all set to, to publish. I, I wrote a big blog post about it, and I was all set to, to release the software. And then I was like, well, how are people going to install it? Like telling everybody that they need to install Ansible first, and then they need to like have one control machine and then point that at their Raspberry Pi. Like that's a big pain. That's going to eliminate like 95% of potential users. And so what I ended up doing was I just wrote a bash script that bootstrapped a little Ansible environment on the Raspberry Pi, then downloaded the Ansible playbooks that I was using, and then just ran Ansible locally. And so it's it was basically the same thing that I was doing during development to, to get code on the device, except it was all just happening on, on the device itself, like managing itself. And it, it felt like one of those solutions where it was like, okay, like this is the quick and dirty thing that we're going to do for now. And then we're going to, we're going to figure out the right way to do it. But that's actually still how we, we deploy it for, for the most part. Like I, it, it's ended up being a pretty convenient way to deploy the software because it's not only that we have like dependencies on, on other things, cause we use, we use Flask and Nginx and a few other components. It's, it's not enough to just say like, oh, you, this this thing like this depends on nginx you you have to also like run like write configuration files to nginx and make sure that it's in the right state and so i don't know of a way to do that without like on a on just like a regular debian system without um something like ansible and so using ansible has worked out really well like it's it's a good way to ensure that the system is like in the exact state that you want it when you do installs or upgrades uh the big downside is that it's pretty slow so like if if you're only changing one thing you still run the entire ansible playbook but other than that it's it's worked out pretty well and i've been surprised that so few projects do that right so just to be clear then you actually have 
the Raspberry Pi itself being the Ansible controller. So like in your Ansible inventory configuration, you have things running on localhost as the server? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And yeah, you're totally right about Ansible being a little bit slow. Like even on a beefy controller, like, you know, a dev box with like eight cores and like all this RAM and SSDs, et cetera. Yeah, just there was no op operations where you're just like going through the playbook, doing nothing, like skipping pass. Okay. They take forever. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a bit of a pain to debug, but yeah, it's like in terms of functionality, it, it works really well. Like it's, it's served us pretty well. Yeah. So in terms of like resources on that Raspberry Pi, do you want to go over like how much memory and CPU cores that you're working with? Yeah. So we don't need a ton of, of uh, resources. Like CPU doesn't go much over like 10% during normal usage. And uh, RAM also is like the, the RAM load is like, I don't know exactly, but I think it's like one to the, the whole system runs on like one to 1.5 gig, including like everything the operating system is doing. Um, and we actually like for, for a long time, we were just shipping like the standard Raspberry Pi we shipped on was just like a two gig Raspberry Pi. And I never heard of anybody running into issues where RAM was the bottleneck, but then with the, the chip shortage, they Raspberry Pi two gig models are like nowhere to be found. So we've had to, to upgrade to the four gig, but like the four gig, it's, it's a shame because it really doesn't do anything for us. We don't, we don't need that extra two gig of RAM. Right. It's also super interesting where most episodes, like people are running a SaaS app or something where you need to deal with, you know, internet traffic, but here it's just like one user. Right. So I, I guess like on the Flask side, do you just run like one or two worker processes for Unicorn or UWSGI or whatever you run? Um, yeah. So it's just, um, I don't even know what we do for, oh, it's through um, Flask Socket IO is the, the runner we use. And so yeah, it's just we don't have to scale that at all. Like we've got an Nginx proxy sitting in front of it, and that's like it's really it's it's not a situation where we've got like fifty thousand QPS. It's at most like <laughs> one person, or like there may be like one person's using it and sharing it with a coworker who wants to watch what they're doing on the screen. Right. Yeah. This is one of those things where if you see that box anywhere on someone's desks, it's like a conversational point where everyone has to ask, like, what is that? Right. Right. Now, before we dive into a little bit on how the Flask side is set up and maybe some libraries that you're using, do you want to go over what motivated you to use Flask and Python in the end? Yeah. So Python, I think, was a natural choice just because it's almost the lingua franca of the Raspberry Pi ecosystem. And so most most Raspberry Pi projects I see tend to use Python. And so in the early days, I figured like I want to be welcoming to contributions and a lot of Raspberry Pi hobbyists tend to program in Python. So I felt like Python would be the the language that would end up attracting the most contributors. That's ended up not really being a factor. Like in the first few months, people were interested. I got a few contributors, but over time, I think it's, this is common with a lot of open source projects. It's, it's not too many people that are just like cruising by and, and find a project that they want to start working on. Um, so looking back, I don't, I don't know how wise a decision that was, but the other benefit, I think it's it's a pretty pretty widely used language in terms of hiring other developers. So it it did help in terms of finding people who could work on the project. Um, but in terms of Flask, I'd used like the only I I'd used Flask before, and uh, I, I generally prefer pretty minimalist frameworks. I I'd played a little bit with Django and it just felt like it was doing way too much and like there was too much to learn about Django that I I just kind of wanted like it to expose a set of APIs and that would be it like I didn't need a lot I did I certainly didn't like need like user management or any kind of like database interaction 
I just wanted like a simple, um, just expose some APIs, process data, make it easy to log and, and debug. And that was it. Right. So at the beginning, did it start off with just like a single app.py file? No, it was probably, it was split up a little bit. Um, it was split up into like, there, there was one component that was responsible for translating um, the the JavaScript messages because when you move your mouse or you type keys into the browser, it, it generates events in JavaScript. And so the way TinyPilot works is it, it sends those events from the browser to the TinyPilot device and the TinyPilot device is responsible for translating those into, uh, they're called HID inputs, human interaction devices, I believe. Um, and so it, it translates that into uh, HID uh, signals to pass along to the target computer. So I had separate components for the uh, HID modules. Um, I I'm I like love unit testing and um, you know like clean separation of concerns. So from the beginning, it was a lot of uh, separate modules. This is I I do have to kind of like force myself to not spend all day uh, refactoring and trying to get like 100% test coverage. Um, but yeah, from the beginning, there there was still like it was factored decently enough right yeah refactoring for me is also it's not weird but it's like it's something that i really love doing like it, to me it's almost more fun to refactor old code than write new new code oh absolutely new code is like just getting it out there like brain dump getting it to work and then it's like ah fine like refactor it and make it nice right it's so satisfying when you can take something that was like this this crufty mangled bit of code and you get it to either something like really tiny or just really simple right and when it came to setting up all that testing stuff, did you use uh, PyTest or something else? I, I've never learned PyTest. It, it always seems like, I feel like I'll, I'll learn it when I hit the limits of the built-in unit test module and it's just never happened. Like I, I get by with the unit test module fine. And in general, I try to I, I try to minimize dependencies as much as possible. So if I can get away with just using the built-in unit test, I'm, I'm happy to continue with that. Right. Yeah, there's something special about Python in that sense. Like, it's installed on so many systems where you can sort of kind of guarantee that it's there. Like, yeah. it's really nice to be able to throw up like a single, like if you're writing like a CLI tool, right? You can just have like a 200 line script and no dependencies and it just runs. You don't need to pip install anything. Right. Yeah. But in your app here with the minimal dependencies, do you want to maybe go over a couple of dependencies that you might've pulled in? Like what's, whatever's in your requirements at text? There's really not too much. There's Flask, there's Flask Socket.io. Um, in the pro version, I use uh, like WT Forms and I use a, pretty small subset of that i think it's just the um i believe it's just the the password hashing part of that but yeah like it, it really doesn't need a lot of external code and one of the other things where it's like i tried to it was like a a temporary solution that ended up be, becoming permanent was using web components and i one of the big mysteries to me is why web components aren't more popular because i've used other front-end frameworks like i've done some angular and Vue and experimented a little bit with Svelte and they're all cool. But the thing that's always bothered me is that you're bought in so heavily. Like you can't just be like, okay, I want to use Angular on just this page because like this is the only one that requires it and the rest of my app I just want to keep simple. And so I started learning web components and there's it's amazing how much you can do with just, it's vanilla JavaScript. It's nothing, you don't need to install any components for it. Um, Google has Polymer, which is like a wrapper on top of web components. But you can use web components just fine just with the, the browser out of the box. And you um, it's actually very similar to the way you write web components is very similar to the way you write view single file components, where you define 
the, the style rules for just that component. You have a little bit of JavaScript that just belongs to that component. It doesn't affect any other elements on the page. And then you have your HTML. And uh, that's in, until this day, like this is, that's still what, what powers most of the front end. Like we, we do almost everything with uh, HTML web components and it's, it's worked out really well. Nice. Yeah, that is not something I have firsthand experience with, but I've heard web components being thrown around like a hundred different times. Yeah. How how is that device compatibility nowadays in terms of like browser support? The browsers all support it. Like I've never run into an issue where a user's on a, a browser that's too old for web components. Nice. And do you want to throw out maybe a couple examples of what type of components you've created? Yeah, one of the early ones was just like a I needed a countdown timer. Like so when you restart the computer, um, restarting on a, a Raspberry Pi is like a little bit tricky because the the server of course dies because like the if you if you say like you want to restart your device of course like the server that you're running against is not going to respond and so i need something to show the user like to to let them know like it's okay like it's going to come back and so i just wanted like a countdown timer for 30 seconds and i think if i was like on on view or something i would look look for some kind of like npm package that implemented something like a countdown timer using web components because there's not like an npm thing where you just like npm install something you're you're sort of on your own and so that was like a really good opportunity for something where i'm like i don't really want this to like a, a countdown timer it doesn't need to affect any other part of the page like nothing needs to know um no other part part of the page needs to like reset the timer or something and so i just implemented that was probably the first component that i did where I just define like, okay, like there's going to be these numbers here. That's like, do that in HTML. And then I'm going to have JavaScript that uh, decrements the counter every uh, particular interval. And it's, it has its own style rules. And it, it was really nice. Like you just, once you define it, you just drop it into the page. And then I found other situations where like we have a countdown where like during an upgrade, the, the upgrade usually takes about five minutes. And at this point, we've got some more information that the user can see about like what's going on during their upgrade. But in the beginning, it was just like, trust us that it's going to work. And hopefully in five minutes, this thing's going to restart and you're going to have the new version. Um, but it was good to be able to just drop that same element into another part of the page. And you just like, you now have the, the exact same component with a different uh, starting time. And so as I've, as I've learned more and more about web components, it's, it's really cool that like how how you can get so far with just vanilla JavaScript and like all of the support that's just built into the browser. And like one of the things that always drove me crazy about doing development in, in Vue and a lot of these modern frameworks is like if something goes wrong and you get a stack trace, it's, it's almost always a stack trace that involves or like even is coming from code that you've never seen before. It's like this happens to me in Vue all the time where it's like a pen node failed on like something where it's like I didn't write that code and the stack trace is all files I have no idea about. But with web components, because you're not you're not operating through so many layers of abstraction, you just like when something fails, you just see the exact line that it failed on. And like when it shows up in the browser console, you just click it and it shows you exactly your code. Like I don't I mean, I have the benefit that I don't have to like do minification because it's not like bandwidth on initial page load isn't that important and usually they're on a local network anyway but yeah the, the user like i can if when we're doing development you i can just click on the the source line that failed and i'm i just see the exact line that i wrote i'm not seeing something that's minified or or garbled by the the framework right and that really does go a long ways in the end because 
Yeah, if you have like a minified version of, I don't know, like jQuery or something, right? Like the stack trace is going to be like, you have error on line one, like character 736,208. Right, right. <laughs> but for folks out there maybe who aren't super familiar with the idea of components, do you want to walk us through like what does the HTML tag look like? Like, I mean, at the high level, you kind of like instead of making a div, you make a counter and then you can pass in like a, an attribute to it to like for the start time and end time or whatever. Yeah, so... Um if, if you're interested, one of the best tutorials, uh, I think it's it's CSS tricks, what are web components? But the way it looks in code is you have um, a little bit of HTML that I think it's the, the start tag is just like template. And then um, so you have this like this outer tag that that surrounds the entire definition of what your template is. And so you you define like at the start, you define the CSS rules. Then you there's uh, like a portion where you have the, the HTML that's inside of the, the component. And the, the thing that's special about web components is they use what's called a shadow DOM. So they have a DOM that's separate the, from the, the regular like web page. And so style rules that affect the web page don't affect the, the, uh, anything within your web component because it has its own separate set of style rules. It, it inherits a few things like fonts. Um, that's actually something I, I, I wish it did just like inherit normally. But it's it's nice because the the style rules that you apply within your component don't bleed out into other components, and the the JavaScript that you write it doesn't affect the other components. So you get that really nice encapsulation there, and so yeah, like you you define your CSS rules, you you define uh, some uh, JavaScript. You can have getters and setters. So like if you if you want to make it so that like other parts of your app can set attributes, and then the attribute affects the behavior of your element. Um, you can do it through that through that as well, and so once you've defined your template somewhere in the HTML, anywhere else in that HTML file, you can uh, you can use that H- that new HTML tag. So say you have this template you, that's called like my counter, then later on in your HTML, you can just have a, a tag that's like uh, like the the starting tag is just like my counter, and then whatever attributes you want, and you use it as if it was just like a built-in tag, like almost as if it was it was built into the, the language itself, but it's it's like you've got your own little extension to it. And it's it's really convenient. And with Flask, um, Flask makes it a little bit easier where you can, the way I do it is I have each component as a separate file, and then I use Flask templates to just go through all of my component definitions and then include them in, in the main file. But like you can do it, I mean, you, you don't need anything special to do it. You can do it with just um, like static HTML files and define the template somewhere at the top and then anywhere after that you can use that tag that you've defined okay yeah that's definitely a very good rundown of that so yeah helps paint a picture for sure how it's all coming together you mentioned before using flask socket io to do websocket connections there and made me think about like what type of frame rate do you get porting all this information to the browser is it like 60 frames per second with no stuttering no it's it's about 30 frames per second um and it depends on it, it depends a lot on the network bandwidth you're getting. The downside of MJPEG is it's uh, very bandwidth heavy. So effectively, it's just sending a full JPEG of every single frame. And so uh, it works fine for for local connections on if you're doing it over the internet. Um, depending on your, your connection, sometimes you want to uh, drop down the frame rate or, or drop down the JPEG quality. So it's a little lighter on the, the network connection. Okay. Is there also any like limitation around uh, the resolution of anything like 4K versus 1080p? Yeah, so the the devices I use are uh, 1080p. There are uh, there are devices that support 
higher resolutions. I, I haven't experimented with those. I suspect that it would then and bandwidth would become a much bigger bottleneck. And uh, people seem like so far, people seem pretty satisfied with 1080p. Yeah, for sure. Especially like the use case, right? It's not like your primary dev box. It's kind of just connecting to a server somewhere. Right, right. Wouldn't need high frame rates not playing video games through this. Probably not. <laughs> right. Yeah, somebody somebody actually emailed me about that. They're like, oh, your, your solution's interesting. Like, I want to use it to, like, I want to have, like, a really beefy home gaming rig and then play video games while I'm traveling. And I was like, no, definitely not. Like, I mean, it's it's good at what it does. It's not, like, you you wouldn't want to be, like, playing, a, a like, a first-person shooter, um, like a multiplayer game where really low latency, like, down to, like, two or three milliseconds matters because this is, it's it's just not meant for that yeah it's such a cool idea though just the idea like technically it works just going to get a little bit lower frame rates um i've never gotten into any of like how these screen sharing systems work but you know you hinted at knowing how the stuff works on, on like the lower end but for some of them like zoom or team viewer or other ones do they actually just send a jpeg over the wire but they only send a diff of what changed to make the payload a lot smaller yeah i don't know like the the way mine works is very different than a lot of a lot of the other ones because those all require an agent on the system. They like require some software running on your OS. And so they have a lot more context into what's going on. Um, like I've noticed that like if you use uh, Microsoft Remote Desktop, like they have a ton of context into what's on the screen. I'm not, I, I don't know like the details of it. I would guess they're not actually sending images. I think they're um, they're sending signals at a lower level just so like the the remote client just knows how to render it to look the same as it does uh, on the the remote system in some cases because it just like it doesn't seem like the the performance i've seen with remote desktop seems much faster than something like vnc where it is sending an image those things those definitely have a big advantage in terms of um in terms of bandwidth because they they have a lot more context in what into what's happening on the screen and it is possible for tiny pilot to do that as well like we're looking into ways where we can um like minimize how much data we send but the the advantage of tiny pilot is like there's no there's no software install with like vnc and remote desktop it's like it's dependent on software that exists on the target system um whereas a solution like this is just you you plug it in and it doesn't matter what os it is or or there's very few requirements on the target system and it just uh will let you uh set like as long as it accepts keyboard input and it has uh, a video output that can translate into hdmi so like even vga you just get like a vga to hdmi adapter and it, it works fine. Right. Yeah. And that's like definitely the preferred way, at least for me, it's like no software is amazing. Just plug it in and it works. Nothing I can do to mess it up other than like not plug it in. Right. <laughs> right. Now, earlier you did mention that on the Flask side of things, you are using WT forms, but only in the pro version. Do you want to walk us through maybe some differences between the regular version and the pro version? Yeah. So the pro version, um, there are, there's support for username, password authentication. So that's where the, um, the WT forms comes in. There's another feature where you can um, emulate a USB flash drive. One of the neat things you can do is you can like upload uh, like a .iso file to the Tiny Pilot, and then the target machine sees it as uh, like a flash drive with that image on it. And so one of the things I, I really enjoy doing is like I'll just plug a Tiny Pilot into a bare system. Like the way that I installed my my uh, one of my virtual servers was like I would just upload the Proxmox ISO to my Tiny Pilot, and then the Tiny Pilot mounts that ISO on the target server, so the target server thinks it's got a Proxmox USB bootable drive plugged in, 
and it can boot from that drive. Um, and it's, it's just booting from data on the tiny pilot. And then you can do like a full OS install. You can like reboot a server and install whatever OS you want completely remotely because you just upload whatever uh, bootable media you want and it'll show up on the target server. Um, so that's one of the things that's, that's in the pro version. Um, what, we just added wake on LAN. It's going to come out in the, the release next week. Um, I'm trying to think of like what other, yeah, I can't think of any other like interesting pro features worth mentioning. So for wake on LAN, do you want to just give folks a TLDR and what that means? Oh, sure. Wake on LAN is some motherboard support. If you send them like a particular packet to the, the network card on the motherboard, uh, even when it's powered off, it will recognize that packet and power on. So you can have a, a system that's powered off most of the time. And so you just, from your tiny pilot, you send it the magic packet as long as it's on the same local network and it will just power it on from an off state and then you can start using it. Yeah, that is super interesting. And man, like I have so many pain points right now where I just started working at a company and they shipped me a MacBook Pro and I kind of just want to SSH into it and use it almost like like a server essentially, but with the lid closed and it sure. turned off, like uh, I can't SSH in until I turn it on. Like, yeah, just having wake on lane there would be amazing. I'm sure maybe the option's there, but I just haven't figured it out yet. So going back to your app here, mentioning, you know, you did write a little bit of JavaScript to get those components working. Do you have any tooling around like, like using Webpack with this, or is it kind of just like just straight up components and no bundling? Yeah, no bundling, uh, no Webpack. I've, I've resisted that for a while. Um, we've, we've thought about it. Uh, we ran into an issue at one point where we realized it was, we had like implemented something incorrectly where it was, uh, when you loaded the page, it was actually in certain browsers, like downloading the same file multiple times. So like there would be um, CSS that multiple web components import. Uh, it would end up like re-importing the same CSS file like 80 times, which like actually wasn't noticeable for users just because like it's, it's just like a, a 2K CSS file and you're usually on the same local network, but it just, it was, it was ugly. And I was like, oh, maybe like this is a reason we should start doing bundling. But then we realized it actually wasn't even like a bundling issue. It was just uh, partly an Nginx configuration issue and, and partly like a, an importing syntax issue. And so we, the one thing we did is switch to um, like ES6 imports. And that, that also like helped prevent the browser from re-downloading the same file multiple times. Um, but yeah, like no, no webpack, no, no bundler. Um, they're just, the trade-off is like, it would increase complexity and the, the thing that would give us is performance, but like performance isn't performance on that initial page load is really not a, a big factor for us because people like visit the site and then like visit the web dashboard and stay on it for, um, for a while. So it's not like they're, it's not like they're getting bored and clicking away and it's not like the page, initial page load is like egregious either. It's, it probably loads in a, a few milli, like few hundred milliseconds, like much better performance than most web pages anyway. Yeah, for sure. So it's like, you know, 200 millisecond response time, but then you're on the page for like 30 minutes, you know, it's like such a tiny drop in like an ocean. Right, right. Yeah. So now let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the rest of your tech stack. So you did mention you are using Nginx there. Is there any other component of your app architecture here that we didn't go cover? No, that's that's it. It's yeah, those are the big components. Nice. And yeah, you were talking earlier about having Ansible configure uh, the actual Raspberry Pi or the, you know the thing that that's running behind the scenes. Uh, did you end up ever looking into using Docker as as a potential replacement to Ansible, just to have things like Nginx and other stuff configured, or do you actually do a lot of system level configuration as well? 
like outside of what would run in a container? Yeah, I've thought about doing Docker. Um, the The tough part is that we're we're doing kernel level stuff in the Raspberry Pi, and so like getting that to play nice with Docker always felt like a bit of a pain. Um, and so like there there are some benefits. I I really like Docker, and I really like having it getting it to the point where like users can just pull down a, a Docker image rather than having to like rebuild it live the way they do with with Ansible. But we felt like there's just a lot more flexibility with Ansible. Like there are some users who want to uh, change some of the parameters with our Ansible install. And so like sticking with Ansible, let them do that in a way that would be a little bit harder with, with Docker. And it just felt like, yeah, like it, it seems theoretically possible to, to do all the things that we need with Docker and just um, forward the, the devices that it needs to access. But it, it just felt like more complexity and not a huge amount of benefit for us. Right. Yeah, that makes absolute total sense. In like some weird analogy way, like I remember at one point in time, I'm like, huh, instead of installing Ansible directly in my dev box, maybe I can just run Ansible in a Docker image. And it turns out like, yeah, there's just a lot of complexity there that, that makes that annoying, like making sure your SSH keys are in there. It's like at some point you just don't use Docker and it's like just, yeah, a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, in terms of Nginx, do you also have like self-signed certificates that you serve as well or no? Yeah, I do. That's a big pain. <laughs> I wish there was a better solution for it, but uh, as far as I know, there's not. And so the way it works is that when the, the user first boots their system, it generates uh, like a, a certificate authority, and then that certificate authority signs uh, a TLS key. And so I could I could just do a, a self-signed TLS key, but then there would be no way to fix the, the browser warning that like it's an insecure connection. The benefit to having a certificate authority is that the user can download the the public certificate for that, uh, like the device level CA, and then add it to their uh, their trusted CAs on their system. And then once they do that, then uh, the connections to the device are trusted, and you get the like the green secure bar in most browsers. But it's it's a bumpy ride. Like it's I wish I wish I could solve that first uh, like user experience where like they access the server and I wish it the first thing they saw of tiny pilot wasn't a screen that said like, ah, somebody's trying to steal your personal information. This isn't <laughs> like a, a certificate we trust trust. But I think I think a lot of people that that deal with uh, IT equipment, like it's the the same thing that happens with a lot of routers and because it's it's the same deal. Like if it's a host that's internal, like you can't have uh like you can't have a CA sign it because there's no public host name for them to to sign. And so you're just kind of stuck with like, yeah, this 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 first page load is going to be a bummer. But once you install the CA, then you can trust that you're you're talking to the right server. Right. And yeah, that's a really good point about like who your target audience is, right? Like if it's technical folks, they'll just be like, oh, SSL cert, got it. Like they, they know what's going on. <laughs> right. Now, since we actually don't have that that much to talk about in terms of like hosting providers and stuff like that, maybe we could talk about a potential like ancillary service that's involved with your service. Maybe like if people sign up for the pro version, do they have to go to a website that you manage around here where they can put in billing details and sign up or no? Uh, so there's there's two ways they can get the pro version. The pro version comes pre-installed if they buy the hardware from me. And they can also, if they are running their own hardware, they can just buy the pro version um, through the website. So like they they pay through Shopify and then they get a download link to the pro version. But in terms of ancillary services, there's a ton. Like it's, there's a surprising number of moving pieces to running a business that's both software and hardware. 
Um, so I, I could talk all day just about like all the, the services that I need to, to actually run the business. Right. Yeah. We can talk definitely a little bit about some of them. Do you want to give us like, not the highlight reel, but you know, one that won't involve like a four hour discussion, which I would love to have, but I don't know how many folks sure. are going to be interested in a five hour show. <laughs> sure. Um, so one that I think doesn't get enough attention that I, I think is one of the hidden gems I found is a forum software called Talkyard. And so it's an open source uh discussion forum software so kind of like discourse but i've i've i like jeff atwood i've never been a huge fan of discourse like when i have to read a discourse forum like i never feel like it's it's organized in a clear way and like the the ui never really like spoke to me and it's surprisingly expensive i think like a, a monthly subscription to discourse if you're running a commercial project is like something north of 100 dollars a month which at the beginning is like was way more than I was willing to spend uh, for support forum software. And Talkyard, uh, it's like really easy to self-host if you want to do that. And then the the plans are like, I think the, the uh, maintainer offered me a plan that was like $3 a month. And I was like, that's that's like ridiculous. Like, cause it's the plans are based on how many visits you get per month. And so like TinyPilot doesn't have like a ton of, of uh, it's not like tens of thousands of people are, are visiting the health forum every month. So like I fit in the lowest tier, but that was like, I think he charges $2 a month for it. And I was like, you're an indie developer. You need people to pay you more than that. So I, I asked to be put in the, I think I'm in a middle tier. That's like $30 a month, but I, I love Talkyard. Like it's, it's like one of the best in terms of uh, customer support and like the, the maintainer really takes user feedback about like which directions to take the product. Um, that's, I've had a really great experience with Talkyard. Yeah, that's awesome. I haven't used it firsthand. Definitely heard about it in passing, but yeah, two or three bucks a month. It's like, if you were to just get the cheaper server on DigitalOcean, it's like $5 a month minimum. Like it would be more, it would be more expensive to self-host it than get through that benefit. Right, right. That's cool. Any other services out there that you use in your day-to-day? Um, so Shopify is like the pretty core to the business. So like all the orders, the, I, I host the website separately. Like it's a uh, static site, but then when they users check out, they check out through Shopify. Um, Shopify, like I, I have kind of a love hate relationship with it. It's it's designed for non developers, and so um, like if you are somebody who wants more control over the way that your site works, they make you work through like a lot of layers of ab- abstraction, um, and it's hard to it's hard like when I think about websites, I think about like okay, I want to have like a state that I can roll back to, and that's like that's really not possible with with Shopify unless you invest a lot into like kind of rolling your own everything and integrating just with their APIs but if you if you want to use like a little bit of their tools it's they kind of expect to like run your entire website or you integrate with with just their APIs and the the support for in the middle is not that great but like in terms of what their their core business is, just like accepting payments and uh, like managing the fulfillment flow and letting me like purchase po- postage and um, like order pickups from like different couriers, that that part works pretty nicely. Hmm. It, that's funny because in my mind I'm like thinking, why is he using Shopify? Can't you use Gumroad and just get a license key? But then the light bulb clicked and it's like, wait, he's actually shipping a hardware product. Like Shopify totally makes sense. <laughs> so do you just use like their entry level plan or something like that on Shopify? No, I'm actually because the the um my revenues are like pretty high on on Shopify, so like it's it's generally like between twenty to thirty thousand dollars of revenue per month. It it actually makes more sense for me to be on one of their like higher end plans. I for a while I was just on their basic plan at nine dollars a month, 
But the way their uh, commissions work is like, I think it's something like you go from 2.9% commissions uh, on the basic plan to something like 2.4% on the the more the higher tiers. And so I, I did the math and realized that like actually it's it's to my benefit to even like paying ninety dollars a month, I, I make that back in the the money I save and giving them more commissions. Right. Also just to interrupt, sorry, like congratulations on that on twenty thirty K a month is is really nice. Oh, thanks. Sure. Yeah, so like it's it's a little bit silly that I don't really benefit much from like I don't use any of the the extra features I guess the the other the benefit of the the higher tier plans is they give you uh, more generous discounts on shipping um, so that's that's a, a, a nice little perk right with the shipping is that just more benefit than for the end user buying it yeah yeah uh, I mean in theory we both were sharing the benefit I don't know how many users like are about to to click checkout and then they see like oh eight dollars I was expecting to to get like $6 shipping. I'm not buying this. Um, So yeah, I I think it's, I guess it's mostly the benefit is, is to my users, but if I ever want to do like, I don't know, free shipping deals or something, I guess it would benefit me too. Right. By the way, just curious, like if you're open to sharing that, like what is the profit margin on each unit? Um, So they cost, the Voyager costs about $120 in materials and uh, labor to make. And I sell them for 350. So there's a, a decent profit margin, but the the overall profit like is uh kind of goes up and down like i'm i'm also spending a lot on development so like i'm i'm spending something like 8 to 10k a month on uh hiring freelance developers who work with me on the product initially i was planning to to do a lot of the development myself but um i realized as i like started going it just there's like so many different moving pieces like so many different um like staff to work with and vendors the between like electrical engineering work and 3d printing that it's it's really difficult to find like the the deep work time to do software development and so i i started hiring freelancers that have really driven a lot of the development over the last six months and that's that's worked out well but developer good developers are expensive yeah for sure and yeah that's a great point about like even if you're making a non-hardware product like just being a sole developer like you can totally build your SaaS, but it's like that just feels like that's where the story begins not ends you know it's it's like yeah selling anything there's a lot of legwork right yeah, and I, I love coding, so I, I miss being able to do more of the coding, but it's it's one of the things that um I've I've had to get a lot more aggressive about like defending my time and one of the easiest decisions is like if you have a team of people that's also good at, at development, it, it definitely doesn't make sense to also do development when there's so many other like lots of little random tasks that pe- there aren't people that you can just delegate them to. Right. And maybe now that actually is a good segue into maybe just talking a little bit about like what your deployment process looks like. Like when these developers are shipping features, do you actually look at some of their PRs and maybe review them before it gets merged in? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting story because for the first for the first I, I hired the first developer, I think around January. And so for the first like six months that he was working with me, I reviewed a hundred percent of his PRs. And so uh like I, I care a lot like I'm I'm a big proponent of code reviews and I, I think you probably can't spend enough time on code reviews so I'm, I'm very thorough with feedback and like I like making sure that we both have a really good understanding of the code and uh, we're now up to three developers and like up until I hired the third developer I was still the the only person doing reviews I would review like every pull request um, and sometimes 
like in in the rare times that I would write code, sometimes I would uh, have one of them review it. But if it was like just a trivial change, I would cheat a little bit and, and submit it. But yeah, I, w- I was like doing 100% of the reviews. And then I realized like it, it didn't feel like a ton of time just because I, I feel like, okay, like I'm just going to pop into this review and, and give some notes. But I realized I was probably spending like maybe like 10 hours a week just doing code reviews. And so eventually I was like, okay, like let's have you guys try like reviewing each other's code. Um, and that was a little bit tricky because they're all like, none of them are full-time developers. They're all part-time and they, they work slightly different hours. And so I was worried about like, I didn't want people to just be blocked on like waiting for some, if, if you're working Monday and somebody else is working Wednesday, I didn't want to like your code to have to sit for like days or maybe even like a week if you're just like not overlapping in the right way. But it's, fortunately it's worked out really well. Like the, the developers mostly have like pretty overlapping working times. And so most, uh, most code reviews go through and, uh, or most, most rounds of code review happen within 24 hours or within one working day at least. And once I started doing that, I realized how much time I had been spending doing code reviews. And once I, once I let go of that and said that, uh, like the developers could just review each other's code, it was, it was, I was astounded how much free time that opened up. And looking back, like I kind of wonder if I did it too late, but I feel like it it was important to to communicate the culture and like the the level of rigor that I want in the code reviews. Because one of my fears also was that like I stopped doing the code reviews, and the the developers feel like okay, well it's not it's not our product. Like we want the code to work, but it's not like we're we're sitting here maintaining this for the next five years like Michael is. But fortunately, like the the developers that I'm working with, like they care a lot about code quality as well. And so they're as rigorous, if not more in their reviews as, as I was. And so I felt like the, the way it worked it, I spent maybe a little too long being the sole person doing all the reviews, but the benefit is that like we converged really well on culture. Like we, we all have similar ideas about code quality now. Right. Yeah. I think that is super important. Yeah. Setting the stage for everyone else to kind of follow in your footsteps and pave the way forward is yeah, right. I always find that is worth like definitely the time spent initially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, I kind of just like implied like using GitHub or whatever, but do you actually have things hosted on GitHub or no? Uh, we do have, yeah, it's, we most of our, our main uh, flows are through GitHub. Okay, and you mentioned that they, you know, they have a decent amount of overlap so they can work together to, you know, not get blocked for days or things like that. Do they communicate over any real-time chat or like your built-in forum or do you use uh, features from GitHub? They mainly communicate each other with each other through GitHub. Just they'll like open a pull request, and like that's that's generally the extent of communication. There's we we have like some internal aliases, but we don't use those very heavily. Um, part of probably like another thing that I've like brought into the company culture is I really hate real time communications, and I I think uh, certainly for me it's like a a much bigger drain on my concentration and productivity than like any benefit from giving somebody a fast response. And so like I've designed almost everything in the company to be not real time. Like people, I I basically never expect a real time response from anybody. Um, Even like the local staff, if something like the, the benefit of, of like the way our business works that like it's on a device that the users host themselves, like it's very difficult for there to be emergencies. Like we can't, have a server go out and like all of our, our users are left like w- without access to the software they paid for because it's it's all distributed like they're running the software on their own devices so there really aren't emergencies that can come up and so like i i really want to take advantage of that and i think that's a big part of why i was able to get 
such talented developers because I'm able to offer such flexibility in the job. Like I think there are a lot of really good developers who are open to to working for companies where like they can have so much autonomy and flexibility where it's not like we expect you to be available at this time of day. We expect you to be available like on video chat for standups like once a day. Actually, okay. So we, we do have one real-time communication. We have like a sprint meeting that happens once every like six to eight weeks where we, we talk about like what happened in the last sprint, uh, what things went well, what things we want to improve and like what things we want to focus on in the next release. So that, I guess I lied. We do have one uh, real-time communication, but aside from that, it's, it's like almost probably like 90% of the communication is on GitHub issues and pull requests. Right. Yeah. I mean, every six or eight weeks is like a couple times a year. Not too bad at all. And now I understand why all those developers spend all that time doing really good code reviews because you just explained like like the dream type of job, right? It's like no expectations yeah. in real time and kind of just work asynchronously and also get paid, you know, a substantial amount of money to do part-time work. Like it sounds like a really good setup for everyone. Yeah. The way that I try to hire for for most jobs, but dev jobs especially, is like I want to I want to be a company that like if I was a freelancer, I would run work for this company. And so like setting it up where um, the communication is asynchronous, there's not, there's like a minimal amount of emergencies. I'm, I'm not intruding on their personal time or like expecting them to like think about the job during their personal time. Um, those were all like very deliberate steps I took when I was designing the jobs and like creating the the company culture. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff definitely takes a toll. Like if you're expected to be on company time between like nine to five or something like that and Slack is like a necessity, it's like, well, how do you get any deep work done when like you need to check Slack or get notified? Like, ugh, it's hard. Yeah. When I was at Google, I was on a team that had a, a pager rotation and we actually had the smallest team size you could possibly have where pager rotation was allowed. I think it was like a six person pager rotation. And so I think I was on it. I was like on some form of pager rotation, like 30% of the time, maybe like 25% of the time. And I hated it. Like we didn't get paged that often, but just like knowing that it could go off at any time. Like I remember going to comedy shows cause I love live comedy and just like hating the show. Cause I'm just like constantly worried that the, the pager is going to go off in my pocket and I'm going to have to like rush out of the theater and go home and get on my laptop. Yeah. It's really crazy on how on-call works because yeah, I mean like you, you want to go to the movies or maybe just go to the beach or something. It's like, well, do I have to bring my laptop with me? Seriously? Like, <laughs> right, right. Definitely not an ideal scenario, at least not long-term for me at least. Um, now in terms of like deployment process though, do you want to maybe walk us through how you deploy new versions to other people's devices? So if you have, you know, thousands of different folks having a device, like how do you get a code update onto them? Yeah, that's been pretty difficult. So we we actually do that through Ansible as well. So um, it's it's a little bit hacky. We're like uh, working on improving this, but right now the so I can walk you through the, the free version. The the free version and pro version work pretty similarly. But when you're on the free version, it just checks the check if an update's available. All it's doing is checking the authoritative GitHub repo and seeing if the commit the the commit available on the remote repo is the same as the commit you've got locally installed. And if it's not, it says, okay, like there's a newer version available. Do you want me to install that? And so when you install it, it it just runs the um it just runs the same quick install script that I initially deployed with. So it's a bash script that creates like its own um bootstrapped Ansible environment and it pulls down the latest version of the tiny pilot code and installs it like provisions the device. Um, so it, it's pulling down both 
the the new application code and the new Ansible playbook code to make sure that everything is in the right state. Um, and the pro version is basically the same thing, um, but we use it's rather than just git commit tags, it's uh, tagged releases so that the the pro version we can be a little bit more deliberate about when something's ready for uh, the the user base to to pull it down because we don't want to like the the free version. It's like all, the the users are are like kind of using like the we expect them to accept a little bit like they're using uh, bleeding edge software and we expect them to be like a little bit more uh, forgiving if something like happens to break. The pro version like they paid for that. We really don't want to break their experience. Um, so we do a lot like there's a, a pretty rigorous. Uh, checklist where we like manually test every feature and that's something I wish like I I love test automation I wish I could write test automation that uh, would just like automatically go through every feature like I I'm a big user of Cypress for my other projects Um, I would love to just like automate the entire like end-to-end flow with Cypress but this is like a pretty difficult project to automate in that way because like first just getting it to run in CI like we haven't found a good way to get it to run end-to-end in CI because you like actually need a real Raspberry Pi device. And then there's also the problem of like a lot of what you would have to do to test it end-to-end is like you're typing things on the browser keyboard and make sure making sure they come up on like on the remote screen. So you'd have to do like some kind of image diff as well. Um, so it, it gets pretty hard. We're we're kind of just uh, scraping by with we're we're kind of throwing human effort at the problem. So we've got a release checklist. Uh, the local staff, the same people who do the assembly and fulfillment, um, they'll go through the they they're started they've started to do QA as well. So they'll go through our release checklist, make sure like every feature works by hand. And then once we've verified all of that, um, then there's some like a few automated tests, and then we we push out a new tagged release. And so that uh, anybody that is running Tiny Pad software, the next time they check for an update, they they can see that a new update is available, and then just pull it down. And we'll usually like we'll announce it on the blog and to the mailing list and stuff, so that everybody knows that they can pull down the latest release. Okay, yeah, I love the idea of like the regular users, or you know, they're not just like open beta testers, but they kind of are. Like they're sort of making sure their product is super stable, but at the same time, you're not like throwing in bugs on purpose because ultimately you want this to be for your paid people and everyone just having a good time using it. Yeah, so like they, it's it's a double-edged sword. So they are getting less rig- rigorously tested software, but they're also getting access to to bleeding edge features like as soon as we we've implemented them. So it's worked out so far. Like we we haven't had any complaints for the, the free version about stability and the the pro version stability is works pretty well. Right. And when it comes to things like secret management, are there any secrets that you need to transfer that isn't in the repo for like maybe your paid folks, like a license key or something? Yeah, there's not too many secrets. Um when we do have secrets, they're stored in CircleCI environment variables. Um, so there's not really like we don't have any secrets about the devices, um, and that's that's intentionally when they when they uh, create their uh, cryptographic keys that happens on first boot. So like we don't have that. We are starting to move to like enterprise license keys uh, for for some bigger customers, but yeah, like there's not a ton of like secret management there, like. Maybe maybe as we get more of those customers, that that's going to become a bigger concern. But it's not like customers are like hacking each other to get their. It's it's not so widespread a problem that like tiny pilot enterprise keys are, are like a hot target for attackers. Right. Yeah. Enterprise client would sound interesting. Where some company just wants to buy like five hundred of them. Yeah, I'd love that. If, if you're listening and you want to do that, call me. <laughs> Bulk discount available. I mean, we're starting we're starting to get customers that are are talking about things like that. So. 
um, like as as we go, we like are hearing from more and more customers that are interested in larger deployments, but those uh, those sales cycles are, are much longer. So we haven't we haven't gotten any like hundred any deployment where it's like on the scale of hundreds of of uh, units. Right, but definitely cool to see that things are drumming up in that area. Yeah, yeah. Now I have a question for you, which maybe will help onboard some enterprise folks. Have you ever get into a situation where like someone accidentally like bricked their device, like? and they had to ship it back to you? Or can you usually fix things remotely if maybe like the installer fails or something just gets into like a really bad state somehow? We have very few returns. Like the returns that we have, the most common reason is um, that it's just like incompatible uh, hardware. So like certain older motherboards like don't recognize the the tiny pilot, but it's pretty rare. It's like maybe one a month. Um, so like it's, it's probably less than 1% of of customers end up uh, requesting returns or having issues with compatibility. Isn't it weird like that? Yeah, I mean, one thing I've been really impressed by is like how incredibly reliable the Raspberry Pi is. Like I've never, I've I've sold, I guess like 1400 uh, Raspberry Pi based devices in one form or another. And I've never had the issue be a Raspberry Pi hardware failure. Like a lot of times people will be like, oh, you know, I think like something's wrong with my network card. And I'm like, Oh, maybe. And then it, it always turns out to be something different. I've had other components fail. Like I've had the HDMI capture chip has failed like maybe one or two times in the field. But the the Raspberry Pis, man, they're they're rock solid. Yeah, it's really cool to hear. Yeah, no, it's super interesting about the return stuff because I feel like the cheaper your item is that you're selling in terms of price, the more returns that you get. But you would think intuitively it would yeah. be the opposite. But it feels like anyone who's really getting in there with a couple hundred dollar product, it's like they've got a good idea that what they want. Like returns are really only going to be like, yeah, like you say, like incompatibility or like maybe the very out there where it's like, oh, I tried it out, didn't like it. But that's like one in like, you know, 500 sales or something. Right, right. Yeah. And like I, I hear that anecdotally a lot that higher end customers tend to be much lower touch than lower end customers. And I've found that to be true, like because I, I, I sell two different versions, the the high end Voyager and then the the hobbyist kit, which is uh, 189. The hobbyist definitely like the the customers who buy the hobbyists tend to have a bit more um, like customer support requirements. Right. Now, in terms of those disasters like that could potentially happen, though, uh, in terms of like just not breaking a device, do you actually have some way to connect to it remotely or no? Um, me as in like me to, to a customer device or? Not like a backdoor, but like some way for them to somehow allow you to fix something remotely if they opt into it, maybe. So I've stayed away from like ever touching customer devices. It's it's rare that customers even want that. Like I've had maybe like two or three customers say like, hey, if I give you like SSH access, can you like remote in and, and look around? Um, just in terms of like, I, I don't like, I think I'm just used to working for like big companies where maybe the rules are different. But like, certainly if, if I was at Google and a customer was like, hey, like, can you access my machine like in your role as a Google employee? I feel like absolutely not. And I think I've, I've sort of inherited that uh, angst about like ever touching a customer device directly. I just, I don't want them to ever like wonder like, Oh, well, like that guy from tiny pilot was fiddling around and like now this other thing's broken or like now my network's hacked and I gotta, I gotta see what that guy's up to. Um, so as a policy, like I, I just never access customer devices. Remote access is something that a lot of customers have have asked for, and they currently can do it through things like Tailscale or WireGuard or uh, Remote.it. 
And one of the things that we're working on now is uh, a complementary service called Tiny Pilot Cloud, where it would just be like a, a web dashboard where they can, where that's like a, a SaaS app that they can access from anywhere, and then that lets them connect back to their devices. But that would that would be something that they would opt into to connect it to the cloud service. Right. What I got out of that one is like maybe you need to come on the show later when that Tiny Cloud is set up, and we can talk about how you built that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I love the idea of this product. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about some of your best tips and lessons learned from building all this out, both at the software and hardware level, if you don't mind. Sure. I think like one of the best lessons I've learned is like, I don't know if you've ever seen, this is like a popular image in indie hacker communities and like startup communities where it's it's this advice that like you don't want to, if you're trying to build a car, like you don't want to start by building like the wheels and then like the base of the car and then like the doors if you're trying to build a car, what you should start with is like you first build a skateboard, like the simplest thing you could possibly build that is a transportation device. Then you maybe build from that into a scooter. And then maybe from that you build a bike, then a motorcycle, then a car or something. I'm, I'm probably like misquoting that that cartoon, but th- that's the general idea that like you don't want to spend all your time. Uh, you don't want to spend like a year on a product and then launch it. And then like only then find out if it's something people want. And I've I've really tried to take that idea to heart throughout the development of Tiny Pilot. Like the the first version was just like the thing they called Key Mime Pi, where it's it's just keyboard forwarding and nothing else. And I, I still get comments like people are using Key Mime Pi for for weird things. Like somebody um, there's like a Raspberry Pi. It's like I think it's like the 400 that's like like a keyboard, and they converted that into like a keyboard that forwards to other systems. Um, but yeah, just starting out with something like very, very simple. And like the first version of my product, all I was doing was just selling kits. I was selling like off the shelf, like hardware, like if people wanted to, like I, I had, I, I publicized this in a, in a uh, blog post that got pretty popular on Hacker News and Reddit, but I just explained how I built my first tiny pilot and said, like, if you want to build your own, you can, here's like where you can buy it from Amazon and like, here's all like the cables and stuff you need. Or like, if you want to just all in one, you can buy it from me. Um, and like I, I was selling like it was very obviously like a, a marked up version of the things that people could buy uh, for themselves. But I think they they liked the idea of um, the convenience of buying it all at once, and then like also supporting uh, an indie software developer. And then from there, I just tr- like tried to find more and more ways to add value and like continue building it up. And like when I I first started talking to electrical engineers uh, about like what we could do hardware wise, they were saying like, oh, like what you could kind of forget about the Raspberry Pi entirely, uh, build with just like the the Raspberry Pi compute module, which is just like kind of like a very minimal uh, version of the Raspberry Pi that hardware vendors use. I didn't do that, and I'm I'm glad that I didn't because like hardware development is very difficult, and so we did it in baby steps, and that's worked out. So like just adding in that um, the more higher end HDMI capture chip, like every time we we iterated, there would be a lot of unanticipated problems that we'd encounter and they were manageable because we were only doing um like one small thing at a time like I, I think about if i tried to do like if i if i had just like gone all in on this idea of like building my own board and saying like forget about the raspberry pi 4 i'm just going to build my own uh completely like original uh single board computer using the raspberry pi compute module i'd probably be in a lot of trouble today because i don't think you can get those uh, compute modules anymore but like I don't even know if I would have shipped my first unit by now because it, with the chip shortage that that's going on and just there's there's so much complexity and so being able to use like simple things like Raspberry Pis are are 
very ubiquitous. Like even among the chip shortage, I'm still able to get Raspberry Pis. Uh, I have to pay a little bit more for them, but I can get them. And just like keeping it simple and and like moving to the next level very incrementally and very deliberately has worked out um, in in all parts of the business. That's that's what I did with the software part as well. Um, that's what I did with the hiring, hiring local staff was something I'd never done before. And so like I, I started it out like very small, like I would start them out um, helping out with just like one small component of, of the fulfillment process and then keep building up until they're, they're, they're taking a lot more off my shoulders in terms of like they're now um, like managing inventory and making sure that like we, we order new supplies every week. And so just doing things incrementally and like making sure you're responding to, to customer feedback and user feedback has been really beneficial and really made the project much more manageable. Yeah. You said so many amazing things there. Like I love how that product is basically one of the best examples of being able to build something out in the open. Like your source code is there. You told people literally how to build it yet. You still have a very successful business, like selling a, you know, the supported pre-baked version of it. Right. Right. I'm curious though, when it came to, before I wrap this up, when it came to hiring your first developers, did you basically find folks who were contributing to you at the open source level and you reached out to them about a position or did you go out finding them on certain platforms or, you know, LinkedIn or whatever? I I did a lot of different things to to seek out developers and so I I would blog about how I'm I'm hiring developers, so like I wrote a blog post about just laying out the way that I like to work with freelance developers and that it, it was, it served a few purposes. Like I, I think it was helpful for me to just formalize like all, all the principles that I, I wanted to follow in terms of working with freelance developers, but I also wanted it to be kind of like a recruiting tool. So like I wanted somebody to read that and say like, Oh, okay. Like I, I like the way that you think about development. So like I would want to work for you. That actually didn't work out very well. Like I got some uh, applications from that, but like, I don't think any were, I don't think any of those even uh, passed the like resume screening level. The first developer that I hired that's that's still with me is a developer named Jan, who's like an amazing developer. And I found him, I think I initially found him like a year ago because I I read a blog post that he wrote about how he was taking time off from his job to just try different programming projects and and learn new things. And that was what I, that was sort of my idea when I left Google. And so I, I felt like, Hey, we like kind of wrote similar blog posts. And at the time, like I didn't have anything in mind. I just sent him an email and I was like, Hey, like, I think what you're doing is really cool. I just wanted to say hi. And so we stayed in touch a little bit in that way. And then as I was building up tiny pilot, we were emailing again and I was like, Oh, I noticed that you're looking for freelance work. Like, would you be interested in working with me on tiny pilot? And yeah, like he, he's been, um, a really great member of the team. And so that worked out really well. Uh, the next one that I hired that worked out was uh, a guy named Jason, who um, actually was recommended to me by a former guest of running in production, Corey Zhu. Um, so Corey Zhu is a, a friend uh, in the indie hacker community. And I asked him if he knew of anybody that was looking for freelance work that would be a good match. And uh, he recommended a guy that he had worked with, Jason. And um, that's worked out really well. So that was sort of similar, like just a, a personal recommendation, but I trusted. But in that process, like I also tried um, like posting on Twitter, like reaching out to people on every month. There's like a hacker news thread about hiring freelancers. Uh, like those were pretty difficult. Um, like the way that I hire people is like I don't do a lot of my theory on hiring is that good developers don't want to jump through a lot of hoops. So like they don't want to do like a, a paid like they don't want to do like a, a programming test that I give them. Um, so I, I figured like the best way to get started is to just like do contract to hire or in the case of freelancers, just contract forever. But I just 
I'm like, okay, we're going to start working together and see how we both like it. So it's, it's tough. That's time consuming. Like I think it, it is a good way to find the people that work really well, but it's also like you, you burn a lot of time on people who don't work out. So a lot of people that I found from like Hacker News threads or who had reached out to me through Twitter or from my blog, um, those ended up not being not working out very well. Like I'd, I'd work with them for a few weeks and then realize like, hey, I, I think just like we don't really have the same ideas about um, like how to organize code or like the same standards of code quality. So I don't think this is going to work. Um, but and, and then the last one I, I found, I think he found me through Twitter. Um, so I guess, yeah, in in the end, Twitter maybe did work. But yeah, definitely like Twitter hasn't had been like a great signal to noise uh, ratio. Like the best ones have been like personal recommendations and then like people who I, I see and like I'm impressed by um, the way they write code and also like the way they write. One of the things I also look for developers is just like if they have a blog, if they write very clearly, because so much of the job is just communication. And so being able to communicate clearly with each other is is really important. Right. Yeah. Especially working asynchronously where 99% of it is written, like being able to write well helps. But isn't it funny how life works? It's like some guy out in the world somewhere writes a single blog post and like that started basically like a year plus relationship. You guys are working together. Who knows what's going to happen? I love that stuff. It's like the butterfly effect. Yeah, kinda. exactly. Yeah. And it's it's funny, like even even with Jason, who is a recommendation from Corey, like that's the same way I met Corey. Like I read Corey's blog and I was like, hey, I think your blog is cool. Like I'm doing kind of the same thing. Let's stay in touch. Yeah. And for like any developer out there, this really works. Like I also have a blog yeah. here and almost every single freelance gig I've gotten over the last like five or six years came from someone either reading a blog post or watching a video or something like that. Like it's just, I don't know, it feels like a really good way to market yourself without actually feeling like it's marketing because you're just giving your best value out there for free. And if someone picks it up, they're like, oh, wait, Nick knows about that or whatever. Let me hire him to do this. Like, yeah, it works. Yeah. I wish there was like a central hub where I could find that because like I, I do love like hiring somebody by, by seeing like the the blog post they write or like tutorials they write. So I wish there was just like a hiring forum where it was just like people show what blog post they've written and then you can hire them based on that. Ah, like blog post driven resume or something like that. Right, right. There we go. Billion dollar idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Michael, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, anytime. I wish you nothing but the best here. But before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Sure. So the Tiny Pilot website is tinypilotkvm.com. That's uh, Kilo Victor Mike KVM. Uh, I have a blog at mtlynch.io, and I'm on Twitter at Deliberate Coder. Nice. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop all those into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.